Hi everyone and welcome to Liz the Loopcast. So today we are going to look at the Egyptian Sinai as well as Ansar Beit al-Makdis and we've done a couple of shows on this in the past but there's been a lot going on in the region so I'm very happy to have both David Gartenstein Ross on the line and Zach Gold on the line and we're dealing with two different time zones here so it's been an interesting show to schedule but first of all thank you both for coming on the show. It's great to join you, and it's, it's great to be on with Zach, who's done some really uh, groundbreaking work on uh, Ansar Beit al-Maqdis and jihadism in the Sinai. Thank you, and uh, Chelsea, uh, David, I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking with both of you, and looking forward to talking about David's new paper as well. And just so everyone knows, David is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and Zach is a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies. So why don't we just get a brief... Well, it's hard to do a brief, but why don't we get an outline of some of the most important things happening in the Egyptian Sinai in the last number of months? I don't know who would like to answer this, but I will open the floor. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and start in part getting um, getting into some of the issues in my paper. I mean, there's uh, been a lot of uh, recent violence, which we can talk about. But what I've focused on in, in my recent publication is something that, that is, is very significant. The fact that Ansar Bet al-Maqdis, which is uh, one of the major Sinai jihadist groups, um, ended up uh, on November 10th of last year taking a pledge of allegiance or an oath of bayat uh, to the Islamic State, uh, which is a fairly significant realignment, after which uh, Ansar Bet al-Maqdis uh, renamed itself uh, Walayat Sinai, which at the very least is a little bit less of a mouthful. So uh, what, what I wanted to look at was what is the actual implication of uh, Wilayat Sinai's pledge to the Islamic State? And uh, there's two things that, that I think were most interesting to me. One is that when you look at the course of dealings, it gives some indication of how the Islamic State ends up luring new affiliates. There are several things that were going on. Um, sometimes it's, um, analysts think of the Islamic State's efforts to get new affiliates as kind of, you know, um, an organization uh, that's thinking of joining the Islamic State and has one foot in and one foot out. And, I mean, organizationally, maybe it's kind of like that, but here there's a lot of things that were at play. You know, the Islamic State was making, over the course of last year, um, a number of uh, very persistent efforts to lure uh, Ansar Bet al-Maqdis into its orbit, uh, sending representatives, offering money, offering money to a number of jihadist groups groups in the Sinai and, you know, peeling off the smaller ones first to, to whom uh, what they offered seemed more uh, appealing. Uh, but you've gotten um, fairly, uh, you've gotten some reporting and, you know, the Egyptian press, as Zach and I have talked about offline, has its limitations. But you've gotten some reporting that gives a bit of an indication as to um, their kind of recruitment efforts. And the, the other thing um, that helped to influence this is the fact that Ansar Bet al-Muqtis had a good deal of its leadership killed. Like the people who were loyalists to al-Qaeda uh, ended up getting wiped out by Egyptian security forces, um, which ended up uh, putting people who were more amenable to changing their allegiance to, to ISIS in charge of the organization. So it, it's an interesting course of dealings, and also the implications are interesting as well. To me, in looking at this, I think that the pledge to the Islamic State, at least in the short to medium term, weakens the organization as opposed to strengthens it, uh, in part because the neighborhood is a very al-Qaeda-dominated neighborhood. This could change you know, if the Islamic State ends up getting a more significant foothold in Libya, as many analysts think that they currently are. Uh, but as of right now, I think that for the pledge, they're a bit of a weaker organization than they were beforehand. If, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chelsea. No, no. Go ahead, Zach, actually. Sure. I just want to build on, on David's points. Um, I do 
generally agree with the conclusions that he reaches in the paper about the weakening of the organization. And I think another point to discuss uh, is also that Al-Qaeda's links to the organization were very light-footed. They made clear that ABM was not an Al-Qaeda affiliate. Uh, I know David has, uh, tends to put more emphasis than I do in terms of the links between the organizations. But either way, it, it was certainly uh, not uh, Al-Qaeda directed as much as it might be as an uh, Islamic State affiliate. And as such, although it had links to uh, Al-Qaeda jihadis, Al-Qaeda jihadis were involved in its, or certainly Al-Qaeda loyalists were involved in its founding, uh, the organization was very much a locally based organization. It was primarily Bedouin and, and other Egyptians, uh, as well as some Palestinians who had been going back and forth uh, for quite some time, not a new phenomenon. And, in, and, and because of that, the group set itself out, and one of Ansar Beit al-Maktis's uh, main propaganda points was that it was fighting the uh, Egyptian military on behalf of the local population, in many ways presenting the Egyptian military as an occupying force in the Sinai Peninsula against the local population. And one of the things that I've focused on in my research, and David gets to this as well a bit in his paper, is that as a organization now beholden in, in some ways to the Islamic State, and I think we're seeing more and more uh, that they are taking orders from and being directed by the Islamic State, I think that also provides opportunities where local actors, whether they are local jihadis or the local Bedouin population among which Ansar Beit al-Maktis, uh, the state of Sinai, Wilayat Sinai operates, uh, it will now turn against the organization as not a defender of local interests, but as a uh, foreign occupier and foreign-based interest organization itself. I think Zach makes a very important point here, and it gets to actually a lot of the difference between al-Qaeda's current strategy and ISIS's current strategy. And so I'll take this to 10,000 feet just for a second, because I think that, that what he illustrates really speaks to the competition between these two organizations. Al-Qaeda learned some very hard lessons um, in its fight against the United States. Um, One lesson that it learned is that the support of local populations, you know, tribes or Bedouins, um, you know, it's it's extraordinarily important to know the local geography, to know the human geography, to know what the issues are, and to embed yourself in local issues. And if you look at Al-Qaeda affiliates throughout the world, that's what they've been doing. You know, in Yemen, for example... ACAP, Al-Qaeda Arabian Peninsula, has been very good at exploiting the Houthi takeover and aligning itself with Yemeni tribes. Uh, if you look over at the Nusra Front in Syria, it's done a good job, certainly compared to ISIS, of embedding itself with other rebel factions and cooperating with rather than trying to dominate them. Whereas ISIS is much more, uh, they, they have the view that they are so persuasive, that the caliphate is so compelling, that they can come in and dominate and kind of take the model of Iraq uh, and you know, export that everywhere. It's much more focused on the organization, as Zach was saying, you know, on, on what they're doing in Iraq and Syria and the reestablishment of the caliphate than on local concerns. And this is one reason why you know, I, I tend to disagree with th- those in my field who right now I'd say the majority of public analysts certainly think that ISIS is the bigger long-term problem. I think that al-Qaeda is the bigger long-term problem because I think that that strategy is one that I'm concerned about much more. I think it's a more sustainable strategy, whereas ISIS's strategy is um, really, you know, if, if they end up losing uh, in Iraq and Syria, losing ground, 
then suddenly they're not compelling. And the fact that they're trying to take this model and export it everywhere becomes very problematic. Now, I don't want to spend too much time, obviously, on the competition between the two because we're talking more about the Sinai. But I think Zach's point really speaks to this differing strategy between the two organizations. And and we, in my view, um, don't pay attention to uh, Al-Qaeda's strategy here and how they're able to embed locally at our own risk. So looking at that and... Uh, David alluded to ABM's um, taking on Bayat with the Islamic State, ISIS. What is the benefit for ABM if it looks like there potentially could be a lot of negative attachments to this in the long run for them? Sure. There there are three main things uh, that really led to the affiliation. Uh, First, and I, I think that Something that we have not talked about as much is that there is an ideological affiliation uh, and, if you will, a, a affinity for the Islamic State itself. There were a large number, uh, or certainly a substantial number, of ABM fighters who went to Iraq and Syria and gained the, the know-how in militancy, in insurgency, and in terrorism that they brought back to Egypt and not under ISIS direction but on their own guidance were using what they learned. And so in some ways there was, if you will, a uh, thanks for all the skills, uh, we appreciate what you did for us, uh, opportunity for, uh, for affiliation. Additionally, uh, of course, there is the idea, and this is something that is, is questionable, uh, certainly the, the idea is that the Islamic State will provide funding for the state of Sinai. Uh, for uh, what, what used to be Ansar Bait al-Maqdis. And this, of course, as an organization that is under pressure from the state, is a very big uh, necessity to have more funding. Now, uh, maybe David has a better sense of the whether or not there has been a large amount of money coming in from sources that I have spoken to. They haven't seen huge transfers of cash yet, but it's expected. Uh, people that I speak to who have uh, ears on the ground in Sinai say that basically the signaling they're getting from militants in Sinai is that ABM's entire purpose of affiliation was for funding. Uh, and I'm going to pull a um, Rick Perry because I completely forgot what the third one was that I was talking about. But Yeah, and so one thing that will be interesting is whether um, whether the Islamic State makes good on their funding offers. Uh, you know, what, what I've been seeing uh, in other areas is that sometimes they? It, it seems to me that they sometimes promise cash that they don't deliver. Now, there's a lot of opacity, so I'm not saying take that to the bank, but it seems to me like that's happened with some organizations, that they promise a lot and they don't deliver as much. I mean, the evidence suggests that the Islamic State is not doing well financially right now. They obviously, at the beginning of this year, claimed that they had a $2 billion budget and a $250 million um, budget surplus, but you know, it's not like you have accountants going into Raqqa and doing audits of their book. It's, it's basically their own word, and it's a fairly meaningless word as to how well they're doing. Um, and so if, if Wilayat Sinai does not get that influx of cash that they, um, that they expect, and I fully agree with Zach that they did expect that. I mean, you have, I think, a few different levels of things going on, including, um, as Zach said, you know, ideological affinities. Third point may have been personal relationships. I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I always want to read Rick Perry's mind, so I can at least start with Zach Gold. Um, <laughs> So, uh, but there, there's a few reasons that they joined, but I think that cash is really at the center of this. And if the Islamic State doesn't pay up whatever they had promised, then it'll be interesting to see what that does to the relationship. And have we seen any differences in the way that 
ABM is operating since pledging allegiance to the Islamic State? The group has moved slowly, uh, and in fact, they're continuing many of the same types of operations. Uh, to date, I would say there is only one change in their targeting, and that was the horrific events of January, where many people looking at Sinai think of the uh, terrible multi-pronged operation they carried out about uh, against the uh, police and, mil- and military uh, of Egypt. Uh, I actually point to, in the month of uh, January, the number of kidnappings and uh, murders, beheadings of the civilian population. Uh, again, Ansar Beit al-Maktis, since its founding, had, dis- had described itself as a defender of the local population. Uh, all of a sudden, in January, they started, uh, in, in some ways it was a, a level of paranoia, in some ways it was to strike fear in the, in the population, but they really started uh, kidnapping and killing locals who they accused, and again, I don't know if this is, they really believed this, or they were simply showing a message, sending a message to the local population, but they accused individuals of spying on behalf of the uh, Egyptian military, on behalf of Israel, on providing information on the whereabouts and, um, and movements of Ansar Beit al-Maktis uh, fighters and, and groups. And so they really tried to strike fear into the local population, something, of course, we've seen the Islamic State do in territory that it's held. And to me, this sounds like this could be a huge rift for Ansar Beit al-Maktis because the tribal element has actually been a strong positive on their side in the past, where it seems like now they're going to turn this element against them in the long run. So how is that going to work for them? I think it's a it's a big long-term risk. Uh, that's why I think that their strategy um, is a strategy that's likely to be less sustainable over time. And, and with my apologies, I'm actually going to ask a question to Zach because I'm interested in his view on this. It, 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 it was spurred, um, Chelsea, by, by your last question about whether they're changing their, their motives because I think Zach's answer was a very good one. But um, looking at uh, a recent video that they released, the abduction and execution of, of Captain uh, Eman uh, Ed Dasuki, um, it, it struck me um, it's not out of line, this, this video in which they, you know, show their abduction of this port security officer, um, then, you know, show, uh, they make him give a locution, uh, then they execute him. Um, it's not completely out of line with what uh, Ansar Beit al-Maktis did prior to the pledge, but to me, when I looked at that, um, I, I think I discerned, um, you know, I felt that, that I could discern some Islamic State influence and that it seemed to follow their formula uh, of, you know, humiliation of the once-powerful uh, followed by, you know, slaughter on camera. Um, and I-, I wanted to see if Zach agrees that that seems to be a bit of a departure or if he thinks it's more in line with um, ABM prior to the play. You know, that's a great question and one that I had not thought about. But if I am uh, thinking out loud now, uh, I think one thing that I can say is clearly different is the group's propaganda. I mean, the the other scholars have documented this quite well. Uh, the the statements and videos of Ansar Beit al-Maktis, of, of Wilayat Sinai, are no longer produced in, by the local group. They are part of a broader Islamic State media strategy. And as such, uh, as part of this, there is more emphasis on the uh, imagery and uh, and the messaging that comes from that imagery. 
So if we think about it, for example, there have been uh, in uh, the summer of 2013, shortly after the overthrow of Mohamed Morsi, there were 25 uh, Egyptian police officers pulled from a bus in Sinai, similar to this operation where uh, these were police officers who worked in the border area. They were on a bus back to their base. They were pulled over by a uh, by a Ansar Beit al Maktis or by certainly by a militant checkpoint. Uh, Adel Habaro has been found guilty of this. Uh, he's been sentenced to death in two different cases. Uh, and there was a gangland style execution where twenty five of them were lined up on their knees and shot in the head. Now the uh, the method of videotaping confessions of of uh, of showing uh, the humiliation was not there, and I think that that shows some Islamic State influence. But certainly, the action itself has happened. Um, yeah. And I think, that, yeah, and I, I think just to, to close this out is there have been different. You know, one of the things we don't always talk about because it's so confusing with Ansar Beit al Maqdis is that Ansar Beit al Maqdis is basically a union of different uh, d- different jihadi groups, large and small. Uh, some of them had, prior to the Islamic State affiliation, been simply more violent than others. Uh, I can think of examples for, you know, uh, matching the the uh, execution of 25 soldiers, uh, uh, excuse me, 25 police officers against a similar uh, instance uh, two months prior in which uh, four pol- uh, police officers were kidnapped at gunpoint and eventually returned. Uh, you know, the, there was a humiliation. It was a, is a, it was a major... Um, scar on the security apparatus, but they were not murdered. And that was, I mean, I, I believe from my reading of it, that, that was done by, if you will, a different faction of the organization. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent answer. That, that was in line with, with my thinking about it, because you know, what, what Zach outlines really is that, um, and as I said, this was my inclination, but I wanted to, to, to see what he thought as well, is that um, it's a little bit hard to see the points of departure because um, a lot of them are in line with what was being done previously. But what I, my expectation, uh, and we can, we can measure as to whether it's correct, uh, I, I, is um, that you'll see more of this specific formula that you saw in the most recent execution, where, where they force people to undertake the locution prior to their death. Now, look, Al-Qaeda had done that previously. Like quite famously, Daniel Pearl was forced to do a locution before they beheaded him. So it's not you know something that's wholly new or wholly Islamic State, but it's certainly something that the Islamic State loves, and I think that it fits a very particular rhetorical formula. To, to me, the, the, the center of gravity of the Islamic State, or uh, one of its centers of gravity, but increasingly the center of gravity, is its communication. Um, it, you know, it's very good, quite famously, of course, at social media. It's good at video production, and you know, it, it thinks a lot very clearly about narrative. Um, and you know the narrative of toppling, humiliating uh, the once mighty, making them accountable prior to their, to their death. Uh, that is um, you know a formula that I think they're developing in a certain way, and uh, I, I expect to see more of that in the Sinai. Although you know when, when I say expect, let me just be clear about one thing: it wouldn't surprise me if it didn't happen, because as both Zach and I talked about, there's a lot of kind of personality issues that are here and on, and there's a bit of push and pull. So it's it's still possible that you'll see um, a reversal of some kind sooner rather than later in terms of um, the kind of relationships between various organizations in that area. Yeah, and I think oh, uh, no, sorry, I, I think David makes great points, and, and one of the interesting things that he attempts to map in his study, and that I, that I have worked on as well, is you know what are the changes, what are the points of departure, uh, and one of the interesting things for me is that. 
Uh, Ansar Beit al-Maqdis itself actually, uh, one, of the, one of its first uh, types of operations, one of the things that um, Taufik Farij, its first leader, was uh, apparently involved in, what, what his uh, obituary claimed he, he started, and it was his strategy, was the bombing of the pipeline between uh, Egypt and Israel, and between Egypt and Jordan, and the inter-gas pipeline uh, of Arish and of Sinai itself. Uh, one of the interesting things to see is that the bombing of the pipeline has continued. Uh, however, uh, in the most recent claim, uh, which was actually the end of last year, uh, when Ansar Beit al-Maqdis, excuse me, the state of Sinai, and interestingly here, David says it's less of a mouthful, but of course there's uh, disagreement among what to call it, the state of Sinai, province of Sinai, will I at Sinai. But anyway, if, if we look at the pipeline bombing in uh, December of last year, the group... Uh, again, they did a pipeline bombing, which is something they had been doing for years, since since early 2011, uh, before they were even called Ansar Beit al-Maqdis. Uh, but in this statement, they referred specifically to the Jordanians and said that Jordanians will not receive a drop of Egyptian gas as long as they are fighting the Islamic State. They basically put Jordan on notice and therefore put other countries with interests in Egypt on notice that they were uh, taking retaliation for... Uh, strikes that the anti-ISIS coalition was doing in Syria and Iraq there in their territory in Egypt. And I think that is something, that's a point of departure that we should really be watching closely because I think that that is where things are going to go to next. And I was wondering, can we take this talk now to the Egyptian state? So like the Egyptian government, what has their, what has been their reaction of this alliance and how are they dealing with it as well as we all have heard about Egypt's harsh counterterrorism methods. Um, how has this changed looking at this alliance? Well, I'll talk a little bit about paradigms, and then then I'm sure uh, Zach can tee up on policies. Um, mm-hmm. sure. So in, in terms of paradigms, um, I think that uh, they view this as a vindication of their counterterrorism policies, which again is, is a little bit different than how a lot of Western analysts look at it. Um, I think they view it as a vindication of their counterterrorism policies for a few reasons. Number one, um, it has split Ansar Beit al-Muqtis. Uh, you have, um, you know, look, it's not entirely split along geographic lines, but it, it, large, it largely is, to a good degree is, and this is how it's being reported in places like the New York Times. So essentially you have a contingent in the Sinai which pledged to the Islamic State. Um, and, you know, largely speaking, outside the Sinai, uh, others are much more suspicious of this pledge. And this gets back, the, the, the rationale actually gets back to um, the experience of Islamist groups, armed Islamist groups in the 1990s. Um, as I said, you know, the, the reason for al-Qaeda having a different approach in the Islamic State, writ large, is is based on their own experiences and the experience that they had with uh, losing uh, in Iraq uh, when al-Qaeda in Iraq overplayed their hand. And likewise, in Egypt, you have an example of how brutality can really backfire on you. Um, the, uh, the militant Islamic group, uh, Gama al-Islamiyah, uh, undertook this massacre at the uh, Temple of Hatshepsut in Luxor in 1997. They slaughtered a large number of tourists. About 62 people, I believe, died uh, in that attack. Um, and and um, they almost certainly thought it was going to devastate the tourism industry in Egypt. What ended up happening was it, the Egyptian population rallied behind uh, Mubarak's anti-terrorism policies after that. You know, the Mubarak regime ended up 
sealing off the borders, um, changing the Ministry of Endowments and Education to try to eliminate militant Islamic ideas. And they were very effective in significantly diminishing the strength of militant Islamic groups. Now, obviously, those groups at this point are, are making a comeback, but that was devastating to the movements. And so outside of the Sinai, you know, other elements of Ansar Bayt al-Maqdis had a, a, a vivid a memory of what had happened during that time. Uh, and so you have suspicion of the pledge to the Islamic State, which is um, basically signals a reversion to this much more uh, violent, overtly brutal policy, which is what, in their view, had failed before. You actually have uh, very similar areas where you have memories like that. For example, um, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, you know, they emerged from the GSPC in the Algerian Civil War, which, in, which had split off from another uh, group, the GIA, because the GIA, uh, the main um, Islamist uh, you know, revolutionary faction during the Civil War, had gotten too brutal in its tactics, and it was backfiring. And so Akim is also very suspicious for that reason of um, the tactics that the Islamic State has implemented. And when you look at people who've defected from Akim to the Islamic State, um, it, there's actually a history that goes back to the Algerian Civil War. You know, the, the group called Jindal Khalifa, which is, um, the, they were formerly known as the Al-Qaeda Islamic Maghreb Center Zone, they defected quite famously in Algeria to the Islamic State, later beheading uh, a French mountain climber. But they had been old GIA hands, the more brutal of the two Algerian civil war factions. So there's a lot of history here, and that history applies also in Egypt um, and um, helps to split the organization. Anyway, to get back to how Egypt's looking at it paradigmatically, um, for this reason, um, you know, uh, because they split Al-Sharbet al-Maqdis after that pledge, they see it as a weakening of, of ABM slash Wilayat Sinai, as, as Zach and I had both agreed previously. So in that sense, it's a vindication. Another way they see it as a vindication is that because this group pledged to state, to them, it underscores just how bad their opponents are, and so they feel more entitled to use harsh and repressive CT methods. So I think rather than creating an opening for the West to say, hey, you need to get more gentle in your CT methods, this actually to the Egyptian state seems to them to be a great vindication of what, they're, what they've been doing already. And I'm not saying they're correct, but I'm saying that's, uh, to me, how they perceive it. I would, I, I would build on that. And that's, uh, David makes really good points, and one of the best things about his recent paper is the mapping of these organizations and where they came from, and a lot of the players who have too many names and pseudonyms to go into now because we're just going to go into circles. Uh, so, uh, But I do recommend it on, on that point. Uh, and I think in, term, in addition to vindicating their policy and strategy, uh, which, we, which uh, I'll talk about in a minute, it what it does most of all is vindicate their narrative. Uh, the, when the anti-ISIS coalition was first formed, the Egyptians from uh, President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to the foreign minister downwards of any Egyptian you speak to says this is not just about Iraq and Syria. It is about a, uh, a terrorist um, belt from Libya through Sinai, Yemen, all the way into Syria and Iraq. Uh, so from, from their point of view, and one of the very interesting things is that the Egyptians did not really respond at all in November when there was this public pledge of Ansar Bet al-Maqdis to the Islamic State, because for them, Ansar Bet al-Maqdis was always part of the Islamic State ideology. Uh, it was no different from it, and therefore the, the announcement was nothing new in its eyes. Uh, and of course, we saw this with the recent uh, Egyptian um, airstrikes in eastern Libya, 
saying similarly, these are uh, similar threats, these are related threats, they relate to each other, and we can't, uh, to the global community, saying we can't just focus on Syria and Iraq, this is a much broader issue. And of course, one of the problems with that the West has with Egypt's policy and with Egypt's narrative is that Egypt puts and places the Islamic State and the threat of the Islamic State into the same bubble as it's the the threat it sees and the existential threat that it presents from the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and this is a different this is a difficult issue for the Egyptians in global politics because they don't understand why they're not getting as much support as they believe they deserve. Uh, both for the airstrikes, uh, you know, for the willingness to act unilaterally when there is a uh, international threat, and also because the uh, they see that the uh, world is not on its side. Certainly, the Western world is not on its side in the terrorism, uh, quote unquote, it is facing from the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and so it's difficult. And this is something that I've uh, spoken about for quite some time: is that the United States, for example, very much supports Egypt's fight against terrorism. Uh, but it defines terrorism and that fight very differently than the Egyptian state. And it is unwilling to support the Egyptian state's fight against terrorism when that fight against terrorism includes cracking down on uh, the nonviolent members of the Brotherhood, on uh, nonviolent civil society, on protest groups, on, on that sort of thing. And so by, having, by targeting civil society, including Islamist civil, civil society, Egypt actually loses support from the international community for its fight against terrorism. And Zach, I'm glad you brought up the recent airstrikes in Libya by the Egyptian military, because looking at the recent killing of the Egyptian Coptic Christians that we saw in Libya, <clears throat> the brutal executions and so forth, do you think the campaign in the Sinai, Egypt's campaign in the Sinai, will that continue on as it has, or will we see even more... Um, Harsh, a more harsh crackdown by the Egyptian military in the region because of these attacks in Libya and this idea of it not just being in the Egyptian Sinai, that it's a, a cross-borders terrorist group. It's, um, it's difficult to say specifically how that fight will affect the Sinai military campaign. One of the things we have seen, and this is, you know, interestingly, following January, there was this uh, creation of a new unified command in the Sinai, uh, that it was no longer a second army fighting in North Sinai and a third army fighting along the Suez Canal. Uh, it was going to be a unified command of, of the two and, and leadership and, and a change in tactics. Uh, we haven't seen a real change in tactics yet. Uh, in fact, uh, unfortunately, one of the major changes of the new command is, has been a, uh, a narrowing of information coming out of Sinai. It had been prior to this that there, were not, there was no real independent uh, reporting in Sinai, and most of the information, in fact, all of the information came from the, uh, a combination of press releases from the Ministry of Defense and then anonymous sources who would speak into the Egyptian, to, to the Egyptian media or, or to the um, international press. Uh, in the past month, there has not been a single statement from the Egyptian Ministry of Defense regarding its operations in the Sinai. And as such, all we're left with is these anonymous statements that make claims, some of which are believable, some of which are outrageous, uh, and it's very difficult to, to determine between the two. Um, one thing to say is that the Egyptian military itself is quite large and quite capable uh, of different things. 
Uh, so, for instance, uh, where, it, where it attacked in Libya, it used uh, F-16s uh, to make airstrikes. Uh, the use of F-16s is very limited and, and not at all regular in Sinai itself. So it's possible for the Egyptians to continue with airstrikes in Libya or with air monitoring of its uh, western border uh, without affecting the operations in Sinai. Uh, one question is how the op- you know, if they start moving more troops towards the west, uh, we've seen them deploying special forces and rapid deployment forces throughout the governance because they're concerned about retaliation. So certainly a question that, uh, that I raise uh, is how moving these special forces, who are the ones best de- designed to take on Ansar Beit al-Maktis in Sinai, how moving them throughout the country will affect the, um, the, sus- the sustenance and the sustainment of uh, operations there. Looking at Egypt as a whole, Egypt itself, outside of the Sinai, has a lot of issues going on. There's a lot that security forces and the military are involved in. So how realistic is it for the Egyptian military and government to focus a lot of energy on the Sinai with everything else going on in the country? Well, it it seems that uh, Egypt's view is that they can keep the problems of the Sinai largely contained to the Sinai, but not entirely, Mm -hmm. but um, that, that they can keep a massive spillover from the Sinai. So when I look at the resources that they're putting into it, like my view is that they're not pouring everything they can. That um, you know they they certainly are um, you know pouring resources into the Sinai, but they seem to be uh, somewhat constraining their expenditures for that exact reason and emphasizing more stopping the spillover rather than crafting you know a counterinsurgency policy that will last for years and end up completely solving the problem. I, I completely agree with that. One of the things we've seen of Egyptian operations in the Sinai. Uh, is that almost every single uh, major sustained for weeks at a time operation follows a major uh, ABM terror attack or or um, militant attack on uh, Egyptian forces. And so it's not really a sustained counterinsurgency. Uh, a lot of these attacks are actually billed as retaliation and retribution for the uh, terrorism that they're facing. Uh, and not, and not as David puts it, a, a sustained uh, policy of counterinsurgency. And do you think it's possible to keep these attacks in the Sinai, or as I saw David was saying that the government is sort of trying to counter any spillover, but in the long term, will more spillover potentially happen? Uh, I, you know, so go go ahead, David. No, I, I mean my answer is very quick. I think I think you can. I think they can contain the spillover. I, mean, I think you will, you will inevitably see uh, some terrorist attacks in Cairo or elsewhere. Um, so I don't think that, that what they're looking to do, I don't think their view is that they can stop spillover. I think they can keep it to, it, it, I think that their view is they can keep it uh, as an acceptable level um, where it doesn't occur all that often. And I believe that they, they actually can accomplish that. They can keep it to, uh, they can keep it less uh, by you know, policing and things like that. Uh, than you know, people think of when they think of a terrorist. You know, one one thing we saw when we go back to again the the formation uh, and the the melding of Ansar Beit al Maktis as an Islamic State affiliate was that uh, you know as David pointed out uh, in our conversation in his paper is that there was a lot of um, 
of destruction among in the organization itself, uh, mostly at the hands of the Egyptian military. And also there was just good old-fashioned police work of killing or capturing an individual in Cairo whose uh, pocket litter led to another guy who led to another guy. And actually in March of last year, almost a year ago now, uh, the Egyptian interior ministry, backed up by the De- Ministry of Defense and Armed Forces, basically wrapped up uh, Ansar Beit al uh uh, operations in the uh, in the mainland of Egypt, um, and in doing so, we actually didn't see a uh, ABM claimed attack in mainland Egypt from January of last year until uh, August of of this of this uh, of last year. Uh, and of course, even that attack, the um, the Farafra attack, was out in the periphery, was out in Libya. And I think that's what uh, that's where I'm going with this conversation is that you see. Uh, Egypt, uh, ABM acting not from Sinai, but actually out of Libya and from the western periphery. Uh, and the attacks were no longer mainland focused and more out in the desert in Matruch uh, in that area. And I think that that showed a clear linkage even before uh, it, even before they affiliated with the Islamic State. It showed a linkage between Ansar Beit al-Maqdis and with fighters in Libya uh, and, and operators out there. And I think that certainly the Egyptian operations sort of drove the necessity of doing that because if they wanted to survive as an organization that was attacking Egypt, they had to find new territory from which to do so. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. Um, and that actually raises one of the issues where I think they could potentially be weakened. Like Zach was saying, you saw a very clear linkage to Libya previously. And that was reliant upon largely AQ-affiliated networks uh, to move in and out and things like that. Uh, I'm not saying ISIS lacks networks. Um, It's just AQs are a little bit more well-developed. So we may see uh, it's possible, uh, and I actually expect that at least over the next few months, we'll see a a diminution in their ability to rely upon Libya. So considering everything that we've talked about I would like to conclude this talk. I want to give both of you a moment to add your thoughts to this. So who would like to go first? Uh, Zach, why don't you? Okay, sure. Uh, I'll let you start and finish the session. Uh, You know, I think that one of the things that we're looking at now in Egypt, and of course we're talking about Sinai, so I do want us to focus on Sinai and want want your listeners to focus on Sinai. But the fact is that um, since the beginning of last year, so for over a year now, we've actually seen an increase in terrorism uh, inside mainland Egypt that has no relation to Sinai whatsoever. Um, and so that is something to certainly think about, that the, the Egypt's fight against, Sinai, uh, against terrorism is not just a fight against Sinai. Uh, and so uh, that is something that we can talk about in the next session. And David? Um, no, I, I think that, that this was an excellent discussion, and uh, you thank you, Zach, for taking part in it. Um, you, to, to, I'll take it this, this again to kind of the, the broader strategic level. Um, you know, I, I think that, that this says a lot um, about the overall competition uh, between AQ and uh, the Islamic State, and it speaks to really their different strategies. What we're seeing is Ansar Beit al-Maqdis, you know, it's been subtle so far. But we're seeing, uh, it, we can see signs that there um, is a shift in strategy. Uh, with, as Zach said, you know, uh, more uh, command coming from above, um, a little bit more focus on ISIS's agenda over that local agenda. Is that going to work? Uh, I'm skeptical that it's a formula for jihadi success in the long term. And, you know, that, frankly, is, is actually 
uh, good news. Uh, that being said, um, to me, the Islamic State, even though I'm less worried about their strategy, they're so brutal, so over the top, that it's really distorting this market. It's trying to make al-Qaeda look moderate in comparison. That's not a good thing. So I think that our uh, focus on the Islamic State is not misplaced, but we need to understand not just their strengths, but also their vulnerabilities. And often when I look at media reporting, it just emphasizes strength. And uh, that's problematic for a few reasons. When we only emphasize strength and not vulnerability and not their losses and not their strategic weaknesses, um, it makes them look bigger than they are, which actually helps them because they're so dependent upon momentum. They're so dependent upon recruiting foreign fighters. We need to figure out how to break their momentum. Um, and a second thing is that when we emphasize strength and don't look to vulnerabilities and don't look to flaws in their strategy, it makes it harder for us to figure out how best to defeat them. So I, I think this was a very good conversation. And uh, again, thanks. For, thanks for yeah. and, and thanks to David. I'm looking forward to our next conversation as well. Likewise. And thank you both for coming on the show. And I think, as you just mentioned, David, those are very, very important thoughts to close with and think of about um, presenting thoughts and statements that will actually weaken what is going on with the Islamic State. So wise words to end with. Thank you both. And um, we will definitely post links to David's work and Zach's work. So you, as our listeners, can read further into this um, topic and discussion. Thank you both. Thank you.